The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5:17 through 20. Go ahead and turn there now. Again, we are going to be reading from Matthew 5:17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. I hope you're well. Um, Christ is risen still. He's still risen. I know it's not Easter Sunday, um, but we're in the middle of what's called Easter Tide, which is a time where we celebrate the 50 days between the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, remembering again that Christ is risen, he's alive, and he's actually with us. Um, Jesus is with us right now. And so as you're scattered all around the city, wherever you are, just to know right now that God is with you, he's paying attention to you, uh, he cares about you, and he cares about this moment in your life, this moment in our world. And I think that's a powerful thing to consider, uh, especially as we think about the season that we're in, to know that Christ is with us. And so we're going to pray right now. We're going to ask his Holy Spirit to help us to open our hearts to his word. So would you join me as we pray to our King? Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being so gracious, so faithful, um, so good to continue to pursue us. And we pray right now, um, all around this city, all around this world where your people are gathered, that you would open our hearts to your voice, that you would remind us of your presence, and that you would speak to us in power. And we need you desperately Jesus, and so we pray that you pour out grace on us, even today, that you would liberate us from these endless cycles of performance we find ourselves trapped in, that you would redeem us and free us from the burdens that weigh us down, and that you would root us deeply in your love and cause us to be a people that reflect your love in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I was uh, this week watching a documentary that I've been waiting for for a long time. It's called The Last Dance, and it's an ESPN documentary about the story of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And so uh, for those of you that were born in the 90s, I probably need to let you know uh, Michael Jordan was that really famous actor who starred with Bugs Bunny in Space Jam. And so you might remember him from Space Jam. You might not know uh, that before his kind of like star role on Space Jam, he was actually a pretty good basketball player. And so this documentary from ESPN actually is about Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And it tells a really powerful story in particular about their 1997-98 season where they made the run and won their sixth 
NBA championship. And so what's, what's powerful for me about this documentary, one, is I was a huge, huge MJ fan. I mean, I had the posters, I had a locker, I had all this memorabilia. Um, I loved Michael Jordan. So watching the first two episodes this past week was actually pretty emotional for me. Um, I, truth be told, definitely got teary-eyed a few times, and I don't know if that was just nostalgia for me, if it was like quarantine emotions and exhaustion finally catching up to me, or if it was maybe tapping into some like tucked away pain from my past or some combination of these three things. But I was misty-eyed watching this whole story, talking about this guy that I really respected. And one of the things that's powerful for me as I watch stories of people that have excelled at anything is learning something about their story and what actually drove them to that determination to excel. And this, this documentary in the second episode took us right to the core of that from Michael Jordan. It talked about his family and the family dynamics that he grew up in. He grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and his family was a very competitive, very driven family. And, and I think it's uh, interesting to hear the way that his family members talked about this. And so I'm going to read this. This is one of the things that his brother um, said in the documentary, his brother Larry, who was about a year older than Michael, he said this. He said, my father pushed everybody. If you weren't doing the best you could, he would find a way to push you harder. He said, and that really drove Michael. Michael said this. He said, I, I always felt like I was fighting Larry for my father's attention. And then they had this interview from his father from a while back. His father uh, died several years back. But they had a, a video of him saying about this story where he was pretty impatient and frustrated with Michael periodically. He said he'd be working on something at the house and his son Larry was a little more kind of like um, skilled with tools and things like that, but Michael would come up and he'd ask Michael to get him a screwdriver or something and Michael would grab him the pliers. And, and his father said this, he said, I, I was pretty hard on him. And he said this, he said, I would tell him things like, get back in the house with your mom. Boy, you're never going to be anything. Just go back and be with your mom. And, and Michael was reflecting on that in this documentary. And he said, when you're going through something like this, it's really traumatic, you know? He said, because I want that approval. I want that type of confidence. So my determination got even greater to be as good, if not better, than my brother. Something about longing for approval from his father. Something about longing for acceptance from his father. The sense of being secure and having a confidence from the love of his father drove him to be as good as he can be. And it drove him really to be the best basketball player of all time. And I don't want to hear any talk about LeBron James in that conversation. The best basketball player of all time, no questions. But it, but it drove him and it drove a lot of people like him. When you pay attention to athletes who have excelled or musicians who have excelled or business leaders or people in art or film who have excelled at anything, a lot of times there is this, this longing this desperate longing to excel because they want acceptance, they want approval, they want admiration, they want love. And behind all of these stories is this desire to be loved. Now, that can really motivate incredible performances in this world and an incredible skill in this world. But often what that leads, even if the external kind of life is succeeding, often the internal life is really empty and hurting. 
And unfortunately, a lot of people think about Christianity like that. They think about God as this distant, far-off father who more or less wants us to behave well and is maybe difficult to please. And so we spend our lives kind of bending our effort, conforming our wills, striving as good as we can to, to live in such a way that would please our Father in Heaven or, or the way we understand our Father in Heaven based on kind of our own experiences of parents in this own world. And, and that sort of motivating factor can create a very kind of like externally um, good person. But it can leave us really, really empty on the inside. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking about in this passage in Matthew chapter 5. Um, Jesus is actually going to be talking about what, what true righteousness means, what it means to be accepted by God, to be loved by God apart from our performance, and what it means to experience the transformative power of God's love in our lives. And so at the heart of this passage is this beautiful truth that Jesus meets us in our failures. He actually meets us in our failures, and he transforms us from the inside out. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. Those two things, how Jesus meets us in our failures and actually transforms us from the inside out. And he transforms us by his grace and by his love. So let's look at this first one. Jesus meets us in our failures. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 5 again, looking at verse 17. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching his followers what it means to live in his kingdom as his kingdom people. And so he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Um, Jesus is, is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning a whole new section that we'll be looking at the next several weeks. And he's anticipating a really important question. Um, before this, Jesus had begun proclaiming this really good news that he had come to establish God's kingdom of heaven on earth. He was coming to establish this kingdom. And he was welcoming to himself, not the religious elite, not the people who had it all together, not the people who had performed really well within the kind of religious systems of the day. He was gathering to himself people that were broken, people that were hurting, people that were afflicted, people that were marginalized, uh, people that didn't have it together, people that were falling apart. And that was going to be raising a question for the religious elite of their day. And on top of that, he's about to teach about the law, about his instructions for the kingdom in a way that felt very different than the sort of prevailing notions of what the law was about and how the law worked in their day and age. And so Jesus anticipating that question from religious leaders, he's, he's making it really clear, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've actually come to fulfill them. I'm not making a clean break from the past. I'm not turning away from the old story. I've actually come to fulfill the story, to bring the story of God and the story of the world to its culmination, to its climax, which was in the person of Jesus. And so, so what does this mean? What does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? He, he doesn't say, I, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to obey all the rules. He's not actually talking about obedience to a list of rules. The, the word fulfillment that he uses is talking about bringing something to its anticipated culmination. Like a prophecy that would tell of something that's coming in the future and somebody experiencing that in the future would say, this is fulfilling that old prophecy. And what Jesus is saying, my life and my presence, my presence here in this world, the reason why I came was to bring this story to where it's been headed. He's saying it's all been headed 
to me, the whole story of our world has been headed to and pointed towards the need for Jesus to come into this world, to fulfill the story. And this story, the the word that's used here that Jesus uses is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was just a a way of referring to the Old Testament, what, what we call the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus is saying that his life, his presence has come to fulfill that that story. And so what's the story? And how is his life fulfilling it? Really at the, at the core is a story of God, the creator of the world, who wants to be in relationship with us as human beings. He created us to live in relationship with him. He created you to live in relationship with him, to know his love, to walk in his presence, to trust in his word, in his wisdom for life, and to live dependent on his power and his strength. He created us to live in relationship with him. And he created the first human beings to live in relationship. And this relationship, this sort of bible word for that relationship is a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. And that covenant, that relationship has, has terms. The, the way that human beings are supposed to respond to God's desire to live in relationship with us is to trust in his love and to trust in his authority. To trust in his love as the God who created us and he made us to to live in this life in relationship with him and to trust in his authority as our creator to actually show us where flourishing life comes from and how to follow his way to life abundantly. And so the first human beings were created to experience that, but they turned away from his love and they turned away from his authority. They sought to forge their own path to joy, their own path to life, and they turned away from God's law, his instructions, his wisdom, And they actually broke that covenant. They breached that relationship and were separated. The relationship was severed. They were separated from their God. And every human being who would follow enters into this world with that same bent to turn away from God and find ourselves in this place of separation. So the whole story of the Bible is about God's mission, his desire, his longing to restore and reconcile humanity to himself, to repair this broken relationship and to restore the world and all of the effects that have come on the world because of our rebellion. That's the story of the Bible. And so the Bible kind of like hits this really important point in the life of Abraham and Abraham's descendants. We refer to them as the people of Israel. When God is meeting them in the darkness, in the brokenness, in the pain, and redeeming and rescuing them from inescapable burdens as they're trying to live their life separated from God. He's liberating them from death and destruction and devastation that's been kind of ravishing their community. And he redeems them by his grace and he brings them out into the wilderness. This is in the story of the Exodus. And he brings them into relationship with himself and establishes this this new kind of relationship where he calls them once again to be his people. To, to trust in his love, to rely on his presence, and to trust his word, to trust his instructions for life, his Torah, his law, um, to trust his wisdom for life. And yet the story of the Exodus and the rest of the story of the Bible highlights over and over and over again Israel's failure, their perpetual rebellion, their, their propensity to turn away from God over and over and over. And while it highlights their perpetual rebellion, It also highlights God's persistent mercy, his incredible love, his grace, that though they've turned from that relationship, God doesn't give up on the relationship. He's continuing to pursue us. And so that story kind of leads this question of how's God going to restore his relationship with humanity when we keep turning away? And then the prophets come. And the prophets are 
kind of highlighting again the fact that the, the difficulties and the pain that Israel is experiencing are because they've turned away from God and they begin to tell a, a story of this new king that's going to come, a new human being who's going to be faithful to God, who's going to walk with God, who's going to walk in his presence and rely on his power and trust in his wisdom and submit to his authority and who's going to reflect his goodness and his character in this world, who's going to be what every human being was designed to be and that this faithful human would also be a faithful servant. And though he would be righteous and faithful to God, he would actually lay down his life as a sacrifice for human rebellion paying the penalty for our sin, taking upon himself the ramifications of our rebellion and taking that whole curse, that whole brokenness upon himself to forgive us, to wash us, to cleanse us and to restore us. That through this coming one, he would restore humanity and God would transform human hearts and would bring restoration to the whole world. And so when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I didn't come to destroy them. I didn't come to turn away from them. I came to fulfill them. What he's saying is that whole story, all of creation, you, what you've been waiting for on your tiptoes in the midst of the pain and the difficulties and the brokenness in your heart and in this world, we are waiting on our tiptoes for Jesus. And he has come to fulfill that longing, that need. He's come to be the savior that the world needs. He's come to be the savior that that you need and that I need. Um, He's come to meet us in that place. And I think that's a really powerful thing that that Christianity isn't first and foremost this this religion of try harder, do better, do more, work harder than everybody else, be a good person. It's first and foremost acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging our failures, acknowledging the reality that that we aren't who we are designed to be, that that I'm not who I was made to be. It's like we, we ought to be as a group of Christians kind of like in an AA meeting where it's like, hi, my name's Gary. And I'm a sinner. Um, I have fallen short in so many ways. Failed to be the person that I know I'm supposed to be. I've, I've failed to be the father. Failed to be the husband. Failed to be the friend. Failed to be the neighbor. Failed to be the child of God that, that I'm supposed to be. I see that so acutely in my life in this season. When, when it feels like the world's coming unraveled. This ought to be a time when I just jump into dependence on God and, and run to him and rest in him and cling to him. But what I'm jumping to is self-reliance. Jumping into self-confidence. I can, I can pull this together and I can maintain control and I can get my family through this and I can kind of lead through this. And, and I feel this, this propensity to jump back towards self-reliance, which is turning from God. I find myself with irritability and frustration with impatience and unkindness. I'm slow to be generous. I'm reluctant to be sacrificial towards my neighbors. I'm distracted. It's, it's really hard for me to slow down and spend time with Jesus. My heart goes in a thousand directions, right? We talk about screen time. My screen time's up like you know, 200, 300% from like pre-quarantine days. Just get so distracted, right? We as a church have been talking about the, the spiritual bondage of technology addiction, and now everything we're doing as a church is like on screens and through social media platforms, right? Like our, our hearts are just like so fickle and frail. And I find myself in this season so distracted. It's so, it's so challenging. I, I'm a sinner. I, I fail to be who I was made to be. And I need a savior. And so do you. And so do you. And Christianity starts right there. Just embracing the reality of our need. And Jesus came to meet us in our failure. To meet us in that place. Being the perfect human. What we were all designed to be. 
and laying down his life to forgive us, to wash us and to cleanse us and to repair the broken relationship. Not through our efforts, not through our behavior modification efforts and programs, not through our self-discipline, not through our kind of perceived superiority over somebody else. Through his own grace, his own mercy, his own faithfulness, his own sacrificial love, his own death on the cross, he came to reconcile the relationship. That's what he came to do. And when we start there, there's a freedom and a joy that comes. But that's not the end. He actually goes on in this passage to say he's not just reconciling that relationship. He's actually transforming us through that love, through that grace from the inside out. And that's where he goes next in this passage. He says this. He says, therefore, because of this, because I've come to fulfill this story and to to accomplish all the things that the law and the prophets were waiting for and anticipating, because of that, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, now listen to this. This is intense. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is that I've come to meet you in your failure, to to wash you and forgive you and cleanse you and to reconcile you to God, to bring you back into relationship with God, not because of your performance, not because of your works, but that doesn't take God's wisdom and nullify it or push it aside or make it inconsequential. It's actually so important for us to know that God has still instructed us in what it means to be human, what it means to be his people, what it means to be the people of his kingdom, what it means to reflect his love and his character and his righteousness and his goodness in the world. And for us to say that those things don't matter or push those things away as if they're inconsequential or unimportant is to turn away from the very essence of what it means to be God's kingdom people. Redeemed by grace, loved unconditionally, but transformed, transformed. Now, it's, it's stunning to me to hear him say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will, ever, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what that might feel like is he's saying, hey, look at the religious elite, look at the kind of cream of the crop in the sort of religious system of Judaism, first century Judaism, and you're going to have to do better than them. Now, that would be such a heavy burden to bear. Because these scribes who were the sort of Bible scholars and the Pharisees who were both the the moral and the religious leaders of the day, the sort of exemplars of what it meant to be sort of like adherers to God's law, they had spent their entire lives learning the ins and outs and every kind of like dot and every um, iota in the words of this, every jot of the law, they had memorized it and they had conformed all of their energy, bent all of their energy towards an external adherence to this system of rules. And for many of them, they had equated their adherence to that system of rules to this word righteous or faithfulness to be faithful in our relationship to God, faithful in that relationship. And so Is Jesus saying that as hard as they've tried, if you really want to be the people of God, you're going to have to try harder. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to do more, right? I think again of of Michael Jordan coming into the NBA, right? He, He kind of came a tier above everybody else. You had the pros, you had the elite, you had the Larry Birds, you had the Magic Johnsons, and Michael had to work so hard to be above them, 
right, above them. Is that what Jesus is saying? Like you have the religious pros, you have the people that you look up to, and unless your kind of like moral goodness exceeds them, unless you try harder and work more and strive more and carry these burdens, these heavy burdens, unless you do better than other people, is he actually prescribing for us the system of salvation by works through what we can do or, or accomplish or achieve? No way. No way. He's actually, what he's saying is, is the whole game that a lot of these Pharisees were playing was the wrong game altogether. The way they understood righteousness was totally misguided. It was this distorted view of what the whole thing was about. He's actually calling us to a whole different system. A system that's not based on performance. A system that's not based on external behavior modification. A system that, that's generated from the inside out through his love and his grace. Makes me think of a, a story in Luke 18, later in Jesus' ministry, where he says this. He, he told this story, a parable, to a group of people that were very self-confident in how good they were. It says he, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, trusted in what they had done to make them righteous, and they treated others with contempt. He said two men went up into the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, the religious elite, and the other was a tax collector, somebody who would have been seen as a moral deviant, somebody who had kind of turned from God and hurt other people and made plenty of mistakes in their culture. And he said the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. He said, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's saying, I'm, I'm so thankful that I've done such a good job following all of your rules. Aren't you proud of me, God? Don't you like me? Aren't I one of like your A-plus players on your team? And then the tax collector says this. It says the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Beat his chest. God, I need mercy. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means declared righteous, accepted by God, embraced, loved, approved of by God, in right relationship with God. This man, the one who beat his chest and said, God, I need mercy. I'm a sinner. I've failed. I've fallen short. It's, that's the one who goes home righteous before God, not the other. And Jesus says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That when you actually receive the love of God, this unconditional, gracious, powerful love, not contingent on your performance, not contingent on your works. In fact, it could even be called counter-contingent. Even though we'd failed in the conditions, Jesus demonstrates God's love for us while we are still sinners. When you receive that kind of love, that kind of grace, the freedom that it begins to generate in us through the power of the Spirit working on the inside out begins to generate from within us a love for God. Not because somebody told us that we needed to be, not because it's a rule that we learned, 
but because of his love and his graciousness. And as we learn to love God and learn about his love for us, we begin to show that kind of love to other people in this world. And that's what Jesus says his law or his instructions for his kingdom are all about. It's all about loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and loving your neighbors in this city and your coworkers and your family and your friends and your roommates and your children and your spouse. It's loving the people of this world as yourself. And that kind of love isn't through striving and trying and burden bearing and lists of rules and discipline and behavior modification and guilt and shame. It's as we experience God's love. It's as we experience his forgiveness that we learn to be patient. We learn to be patient with our family members because he's so patient with us. That we learn to be gracious with people that have a different perspective on life because he's so gracious with us. That we learn to be sacrificial and generous to our neighbors because he's so sacrificial and generous to us. That we learn to serve other people with humility and to lean towards people that are in need because he has come towards us to meet us in our need. It's as we receive his love inside of us and rest in his love and trust in his love, even when we continue to fail and struggle, that he generates within us a whole new kind of righteousness, a righteousness that shines like salt and light in the world. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you now. Um, All around this city, we are tempted uh, to fall into either feeling really proud about how we've done in life or how we've been doing or feel shame and regret or just to ignore it altogether because the burden of thinking about these things feels too heavy. Um, Would you help us to be a people that are really honest about our failures, honest about our weakness, honest about our propensity to turn away from you? And would you remind us of your mercy, of your love, of your faithfulness, of your grace, of your kindness, and would you transform us, Holy Spirit, transform us from the inside out to be a people of love, to be people that that love you, God, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and that we love other people, love other people with your kind of love as ourselves. We need you, Jesus, and we pray for your help. In Christ's name, amen.